I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Jessie Owens. She's a dance artist, choreographer, structural integration practitioner, and an embodiment practitioner. She's also a recent graduate from Goddard's Graduate Institute in the Healing Arts and Sciences and Embodiment Studies program. Her graduate thesis, which I absolutely loved, is titled The Adaptable Body, Increasing the Body's Capacity for Living Through Interoceptive Awareness, Effort, and Challenging the Status Quo. Jessie, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much. One of the first statements in your thesis is that not everything gets fixed. And when it comes to the body, nothing ever really gets fixed. And you also wrote about existing in a state of numbness and despair for a number of years, followed by a rage that you thought would never leave. Could you talk about that realization that not everything gets fixed and how that fits into this whole thesis of yours? Yeah, I think it would be really fair to say that I I experienced an embodied epiphany through dance that things could be different. You know, I talk about these years of, you know, living in this state of, of depression and numbness and despair. And I actually wouldn't have even back then, I wouldn't have called it despair, but I call it that now in hindsight. That was my normal. That was my default status. And so not having lived much in the way outside of that, I did recognize when things were worse, but my better wasn't really leaving that state. And so I didn't have anything to compare it to, really, until I began to dance at Smith College almost every day for three years. And this wasn't my introduction to dance, and it wasn't my introduction to what dance could do. But it certainly was, for me, this really the beginning of, of what I would call an embodied practice, a very intentional embodied practice. And again, the intention wasn't to change myself, but practice. The intention of practice was there. And I began to wake up to myself in a way that I never had before. I began to wake up to the goings on in my body. There was a revealing. There was a you know, again, this embodied epiphany that I, that I began to experience through movement, through dance, through 
the focused awareness that I was practicing specific to the kind of dance I was doing. And I began to see the root of things. I began to see, oh, I have been living in this state. Oh, and I can access different parts of me and I can experience my myself and my body differently than, than I have in the past. There are other parts of me there, right, that I began to really get to know. And then, you know, circling to this idea of not everything gets fixed and maybe nothing really gets fixed, that came later. That really began to come in as I was learning the practice of structural integration, as I was really beginning to learn about trauma and how it changes the body, how it affects the body and, and the way we think and the way we move and, and our worldviews. And I began to really interrogate the way that biomedicine has trained us culturally to approach the body and psychology has approached the body, you know, in this way of, you know, healing as fixing. And that just has not been my experience. And, and from what I see, you know, working with other folks, you know, as a practitioner, that's not their experience either. We don't fix it, whatever it is, and then we're done with it. We actually learn how to live with it. We integrate the experience into our bodies those experiences inform us and how we move through the world and how we view the world. And they live on, they continue on. And I don't say that to be negative, not everything gets fixed or that we need to swim in it in the same way over and over and over again, but that they, they do continue to live on in our tissues and in our memories and, and maybe even not in our memories, but in our subconscious. And again, below the, maybe even below the surface of what we perceive that our bodies are continuously informed by them. And the way I really began to, you know, the way that structural integration really, really showed this to me plainly is in, in the way that I see people and their postures, that this understanding that a posture is an accumulation of a lifetime of experiences through which the body develops strategies to work with, work around, work through. It's never just one thing. And that one thing that happened long ago can also still be there along with all of the other things that we've been through, that we've experienced, that we've accumulated and learned how to live and dance with. And so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. The question is a big one. <laughs> it's, it's been a long process of, of coming to that realization and really still, still digesting that, what that means. Yeah, and what you said, it's interesting how our traumas, even our, our most negative experiences, can really help to inform us in ways that are profoundly positive once we find a way to create that kind of inner alchemical shift of perspective or shift of, of the elemental quality of that energy. You could Maybe that's a way of talking about it. Yeah. So talk about that in your own language and how movement and dance kind of catalyzed that whole thing for you. Yeah. And so I did not set out to work with my trauma when I started dancing. <laughs> it was actually probably just the opposite. You know, I think my body knew more than my brain did. There was a lot of, I would call it, you know, an intuitive pull 
toward dance that I had been experiencing when I when I first started dancing. Um, I started dancing in my 20s, and it was one of the first places that I really truly felt pleasure in myself. You know that I that I knew that I could consistently find it there in dance. That I could, you know, begin to experience joy in my body in this world of dance. Years and years ago, I was learning to dance Argentinian tango for the first time, which I would call an improvisational technique. And I remember this, this thought, this, this thought coming into my head, this really clear kind of a realization that this, this is going to save my life. I remember thinking it so clearly, just that I have to do this, this drive toward doing this. And then I forgot about it <laughs> completely, but I still kept dancing and I just found this immense joy and, and connection in Argentinian tango. And, and then when I went to Smith, I was learning improvisation. And again, not because I was trying to work through my issues, you know, but because I loved it so much and I wanted so much to just feel something good. I wanted to immerse myself in the joy of this. And at the time, I really thought of it as, you know, sort of a selfish act. I was in my 30s and I was finishing my bachelor's degree and it felt completely impractical to go and, and major in dance in my 30s. And I was surrounded by a bunch of, you know, folks who were younger than me who had started dancing earlier than I did. And, you know, I, I really hit on the, you know, the logistics and the practicalities of this. And, and I was much more concerned with that. What am I going to do with a dance degree in my 30s? I'm not going to go and join a, you know, a professional dance company and I'm never going to be a virtuosic ballerina. And the longer I stayed in it, though, the longer, you know, the more I kept dancing and, and finding my way into this practice, the more I began to, to see myself to understand my my body on a on a much deeper level and from that what happened there was i began to see what i could no longer ignore i began to see you know my my early childhood experiences in a new way and i began to understand them or have a little bit of a capacity to to remove myself from it to look at it more objectively and to see you know where i needed to work specifically so i wouldn't necessarily call I am not a dance therapist, and that's not the path I chose. I wouldn't necessarily call what I did with dance a form of therapy. I would call it interoceptive development. I would call it building building my awareness of interoception, which I've thrown out a big word now, <laughs> and now I need to define it. But I would call it developing my sense of awareness of my inner workings, of my body, of, of my inner, of my sensations, of how I create meaning from these sensations and the emotional milieu of my body. That's what I, that's what I did with dance. So how do you sense from your own experience that movement and dance facilitated that process for you, that, that shifting of your inner experience of yourself and your body and your, your relationship of yourself in the world kind of? Yeah. How do I sense that it was specifically dance that did that? Is that what you mean? Well, not so much that it was specifically, but how do, how does dance and movement facilitate that? Yeah. So I was working with a mentor who was actually specifically working on sensory perception with his dancers. So that introduction to that idea was there. Chris Aiken is 
the person who I danced with primarily when I was at Smith. He was my advisor and he is a, an improvisation dance artist. And, you know, this was around 2012 and he was really becoming interested in, in fascia and in sensory perception and the sensory receptors in fascia. And, you know, not very many people were talking about this back then. Many, many more people are talking about fascia and proprioception and interoception now, but it was, a, you know, I'd never heard these words before and it was a brand new concept. And in the context of dance, you know, he was trying to help his dancers access themselves and their bodies more to be able to dance and move more intelligently with more physical awareness. And, and in the context of improvisation, we are not learning specific choreography. Rather, we're not emulating another person's movement and learning the steps. We are creating the movements from, you know, from scores that we have, maybe a question that we put on in our bodies, or maybe a, a task initiate your movements, all of your movements from your left elbow, for example. And so what then happens when I initiate a movement with my left elbow, where can it possibly go from there? And so to be able to dance in this way, it requires a lot of focus, a lot of focused awareness on your physical body, being able to track and stay with the sensations of the body as you move. It began to dawn on me that this was actually the same or very similar kind of focused awareness of sensation that I would practice in Vipassana meditation. Um, I practiced Vipassana for quite a few years before doing this kind of dance, and it just rang so familiar. This is this is awareness-based practice. This is this is a sensation building practice. And then as I began to learn more about fascia and understanding that this is our most sensory rich organ, that this is really the tissue through which we experience the world around us and ourselves, that when we, when we use this tissue, when we are intentional about using this tissue, dance, and actually I would argue any movement, but dance in particular can be this practice through which we can develop this sense of ourselves. The sensory receptors in fascia, they're activated through stretch, through pressure, through touch, or through movement. We need to move or be moved in order to connect with these sensory receptors, in order for these sensory receptors to perceive. And so movement, and in particular dynamic movement, in which we are trying and doing new things, rather than just the habitual, you know, well-worn pathways of movement, we give our body new feedback all the time. We're always bringing in new sensory information. And when we are actively focusing on what it feels like to move in this new way, then we are building that sense of, of awareness, that proprioceptive awareness. Where is my body in space? And is it actually where I think it is, how I picture it to be? How do I feel about how I'm moving? How do I feel about the sensations that are coming into my body? This is touching on interoceptive awareness. What are, the, what are the sensations that I feel bubbling up from inside of me in response to this movement, new movement pathway that I've created? So dance in the fact that it can be so dynamic, right? Moving outside of, of habitual ways of, of interacting with the world creates these new possibilities. And that gives your tissues new information, new possibilities, new understandings of, of how to be in the world, how to move through the world. So proprioception is happening at the same time along with interoception. Always. It's just it's just that in our culture, 
we are, because of the nature of our culture, we are kind of distracted away from the inside inner awareness and taught to focus primarily on the outer. Yeah, and to just give a little nuance in those words, interoception is constantly happening in your body, whether you're aware of it or not. Interoception is actually not necessarily even happening at the level of awareness. So, for example, your fascial tissues are are constantly seeking sensation. We are aware of very little, actually, interoceptive activity that's going on inside our bodies. Our brains are constantly listening to the actions of the viscera, for example, the gut-brain interaction. But we're aware of very little of that. If we were aware of all of it, it would make us just, it would disappear everything else. Like we wouldn't be able to function, you know, it would be so much stimulation. So, you know, we are aware of very little of our interoceptive sensations, but we can build that awareness. And so we can, we can highlight it more. We can focus on it more. And really what I've discovered through, you know, working with the fascial tissues, whether it's, you know, through this kind of focused awareness and movement or, you know, with structural integration with myofascial techniques, we can build and open up that sensory awareness. We can help to hone our awareness to sensation. And so, yes, proprioception, interoception, they're always happening all of the time. And there's a, there's a crossover there. You know, an example that I give a lot is if you hold your arm out, you know, to shoulder height out to the side, without looking, is my arm lined up with my shoulder? You know, is my wrist completely straight or is it flexed or extended in some way? And then maybe you take a glance and it's not exactly what you thought it was. Maybe your fingers are a little more extended than you thought they were. Maybe your your wrist is a little more flexed. That's your proprioception. And if you hold your arm out there long enough, you begin to have an opinion about it, right? <laughs> How long is this person going to ask me to hold my arm out there, right? Oh, I'm beginning to feel this tension. Oh, I'm beginning to feel this, maybe this feeling of fatigue. You know, I kind of want to put my arm down now. This is when the interoceptive cues start to come in, right? When we begin to have an opinion. And this is also where it crosses over into our emotional meaning making, which is not the same thing as interoceptive awareness. Interoceptive awareness is simply the feeling of tension, the perception of tension, maybe, or other really basic ones are feeling hungry, feeling thirst, needing to go to the bathroom, observing the temperature, right? It is the meaning making, the emotional component that we put on it when we have an opinion about it. Ooh, it's more pleasant if I put a coat on, for example. I'm beginning to feel like a sort of urgency around being hungry. Now I really need to feed myself. And that's the thing that needs to come first. So this is kind of where you can see it can cross over into the emotional. Mm -hmm. One of the things that reading your thesis gave me was a deeper sense of my body than I previously had. And I started you know, feeling into that and allowing my body to move freely, which I do a lot already, but doing it with this kind of deeper and greater sense of awareness, I could feel energy moving through my body in ways that was even more granular and more delicious than I had experienced before. And as we're doing this, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm moving my body and swaying back and forth, 
side to side and moving my arms and hands. And as I'm doing that, I am feeling energy flowing. And it's interesting how in our culture, we've become so sedentary and we don't tend to allow our bodies to move in free and creative ways that can allow energy to flow. And somewhere in your thesis, you talk about the fascial system of our sensory receptors being kind of like the meridians in the Chinese system, the flow of energy. Was there a connection there? So, yeah, you're speaking about the myofascial meridians that have been mapped out by Tom Myers. So he has mapped out these connections, these fascial connections, these sort of fascial continuations. And he's done this, you know, through dissection, human dissection, which I use the word traditionally loosely here, but traditionally in human dissection, you know, we've humans have targeted the main structures of the body, the the sort of bigger structures of the body, seeing them as much more important, right? The the muscles, right? The origins and insertions and the organs, rather than seeing this interconnectedness via the connective tissue, via the fascia. And so fascia is all over the body. There are many forms of fascia ranging from very elastic, very viscous to dense ligamentous fibrous types of fascia and so so much of what our you know tissues are is that if we were to actually take away everything except for the bones and the fascia we would still be in the shape of us we would still visibly be i would still visibly be jesse <laughs> in a lot of ways so what tom myers has done is mapped out these you know, connections, and they travel, the, you know, they extend through the, you know, the muscle, the myofascia, the fascia of the muscles to the ligaments, to, you know, different parts of the body, and has been able to trace these, you know, so for example, the superficial front line extends from the tips of the toes, all the way up to the top of the head. And he's been able to really connect the fascia in this way. So that's what I'm speaking of, is these meridians and you can actually learn more about that through anatomy trains his website is called anatomy trains and there is some crossover with the organ channels with the chinese medicine meridians as well it's not exactly the same but there is some similarity there and so yes from an energetic perspective we might really see that relationship and it's really interesting how the fascial system is is actually a very fluid system. It's like an organ that when our bodies are alive and we're healthy in a kind of fluid, open sense, not only does energy flow freely, but it also seems to have an accelerating effect on the other processes in our life, the inner processes. Like, for example, I also went through many years of kind of depression and despair and and feeling like I was stuck in a place of limbo that would never end. And it wasn't until later that I started doing movement practices as part of my spiritual journey. We did various things like doing these kind of walking in different different kinds of sensual, imaginal ways, like imagining ourselves walking through like a swimming pool filled with honey. Yeah. 
and then there would be a little bit of music and then a bell would ring and you would stop. That was your cue to just stop wherever you were, however your body was positioned and just hold that position, usually for about 30 seconds or maybe longer until the bell rang again and the music would start and then you start moving. And we hadn't, we did a number of things. There was a walk where we would shift like sand, like the way sand shifts in the desert or sand shifts through an hourglass very, very slowly. So the movement is very, very conscious and very deliberate. And when I was doing massage training many years ago, we also learned Tai Chi in the class, I guess, to promote a greater sense of body awareness. So all of this was all happening at the same time in my life. And I can't say that that ended my uh, periods of depression and despair because I did continue to cycle in and out of them for many years after that. But I would say that the experience of joy and freedom dramatically increased as a result of all of that. So I'm sort of curious what you think or if you think that movement and dance accelerates all of that and how that works. Yeah. yeah, I do. And I think there are lots of things at play here. Not all of them I completely understand yet. And it's so interesting because you're describing some some, you know, of the scores that I would actually dance as well. Like Move Through Honey is a is a favorite dance score that I practice. And what you're talking about is touching on we're we're introducing play into our bodies, right? We're introducing joy into our bodies. And so that in and of itself, right? This, this idea, this actual tangible experience of being able to feel myself in this way, in this joyful, pleasurable, interesting way where I am, I am listening and I'm feeling and I'm sensing and I'm full of curiosity rather than I am expecting and I am resigned to and I am stuck in which is really the kind of the timbre that I've experienced in my way of experiencing depression, that there's an openness and a receptivity and that that's the way that we're approaching the body in this work, in this practice, which invites in a new experience. I write a little bit about this in my thesis about Lisa Feldman Barrett's work. She writes about how emotions are made. Her book is called How Emotions Are Made. And she talks about the brain as being a predictive processor. And the way I understand it is that your fascia is listening to the world, your nervous system is listening to your fascia, your nervous system speaks to the brain. Your brain makes all kinds of predictive decisions and and responses and really simulations about the way the world is based on this experience, but also based on the past. And so this is the predictive processor, right? The reason she writes the reason our brains work in this way is because if it worked on response level time, as in, is if we saw a threat and then thought about what to do and then did it, we would already be dead. And so it's, it's a survival strategy that our brains predict the outcome of what is about to happen before we even, you know, are consciously aware sometimes of what's happening. So an example is, you know, there's a, threat coming at you in the form of some kind of a creature when you're in the woods and you might 
already have this feeling of being on edge or you might already start running away from it before you even get a glimpse of what it is, right? Or before you maybe even realize what's happening. Uh, another example is like jumping, being startled by something that comes out you know, of nowhere and maybe it's just someone you know passing by or coming into a room and interrupting your thoughts or wherever you've been. Your brain has not predicted that. Your brain has predicted what's happening right in front of you. And so what we're doing when we're actually really consciously listening to this process, right? Fascia listening to the world, listening to ourselves, nervous system listening to the fascia, fascia communicating to the brain. We are actually in the present moment of our experience and we are not in that predictive processing, right? My world is, is made up in a depressive world of the colors of what has come before, right? My experience of trauma coming in is really informing the way that I see the world. But when I am in the experience of my body and when I allow myself to be open and receptive to what is, and when I invite in this possibility of play and joy and excitement and what's coming and newness, then I get to also help to change and rewrite that prediction, right? There's also the, the expectation that the brain now understands of, we have also experienced our body in this way. So this could be possible too. And I think, you know, dance is one way movement is one way to do it, but I think that there are other ways to do this as well. Like other life experiences that can accumulate in to help change that predictive processing. Mm -hmm. It just seems to me that dance and movement are, are probably a lot faster than many of the other ways. Yeah, I would agree with that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At least the way that I experienced when I was younger of, you know, the process of just sitting with things forever and not doing anything to, to help stimulate some kind of flow. Yeah. Or to unstasis the stasis, which it seems just tends to at least help perpetuate the state that we're already in. Yeah. Yeah. And at the beginning of what you just said before, you said that our fascia is listening to the world. That really struck me as kind of counterintuitive because I get that we can listen to our fascia. We can sense our fascia in that way, but how, or what do you mean by fascia is listening to the world? Yeah, so that feedback coming from outside of ourselves, right? Imprinting upon us, that, that is actually exteroception. But these receptors that, you know, that are moved by, that, that are literally, like I said, stretch activated so that we're moved or we move ourselves. So the, you know, the feeling of contact coming in from outside of the body, that is giving feedback to the fascia. The, again, the feeling of, of temperature change, you know, your interoceptive awareness, that's your fascia listening to the world. That's what I mean by that. All of this feedback coming in from the outside but also coming in from the inside. So it's both and, yeah. So, you know, what I've learned or think I've learned is that we have all these receptors in our skin. Yes, we do that too, yeah. Are those separate and distinct from the fascial receptors? You know, that's a great question. I have not done research on the sensory receptors in skin, but my guess is that there's a whole lot more overlap than not. You know, we love to think about the body in layers. We love to think about this system versus that system. But my guess is that there is a little bit of overlap. We do have this, you know, the skin. My guess is that they're a similar kind of 
of receptor. So what I do know about fascia is that, you know, studies have shown that this is our most sensory rich organ by far. And so, you know, the skin is not very thick. And so what kind of pressure is coming in and affecting, you know, these receptors? Do we have interoceptors in our skin? My guess is probably, you know, what is that first line of communication that comes in? But we also know that there are sensory receptors in our fascia as well. Quite a lot of them, it turns out. And so, yeah, this is the orientation that I have is like looking from the lens of fascia. And I'm remembering, or at least I think I'm remembering that you actually wrote somewhere in in your thesis that the fascia, fascial system in our body is actually connected to every cell in our body. Is that true? Yes. So they call it the extracellular matrix. Yeah. So when you think about, you know, if we move the fascial matrix in any way, we are actually, you know, moving us, moving ourselves on a cellular level. Yeah. Robert Schleip is a researcher who was a rolfer, actually, to begin with, for many years. And I I believe he was also a psychologist. And he has done a lot of work on researching fascia and how it pertains to body work. And he writes a lot about the fascial matrix, different types of fascia, and also, you know, what it means to think about fascia from this lens of body work. And one of the things he really talks about is, is that, you know, we have the potential, you know, to really move and change the body on a cellular level, you know, at the level of DNA when we, when we are, you know, manipulating the fascial tissue. And doing it consciously. That's right. Or unconsciously, actually. We are also doing that. We are always working with our fascia in some way, whether we're moving or not. And so the fascia itself organizes itself to movement or lack of movement. And not just movement, but how you live your body, right? How, how well you eat, how hydrated you are, all of these things are going to change your fascial makeup and help to organize that matrix for better or for worse, really. And so when you mentioned how you know, fascia is this fluid system, we can help it be more fluid by literally moving more. Many people talk about motion is lotion, you know, this idea of motion is lotion. When we move the body, we encourage this fluidity of movement, right? We encourage the shear between structures in the body, the different muscles in our body. There's fascia in and between them all. Fascia, if you were to do a cross-section of any muscle in the body, you would see, you know, on a microscopic level, you would see fascia going into these tissues. It's not just a saran wrap around the muscles and organs. It's actually connecting into and through all of these these muscles all of the individual spindles of the muscles are surrounded by fascia and so you know like i said if we were to remove everything else we would still be in the shape of us because there is that much of it and so if we move we are encouraging this differential movement this ability for the shear and the glide to happen when we don't move the fascia will really support these fixed postures as well and i use support in air quotes here because your fascia is going to respond to everything it is that you do. So if you, if you do this repetitive movement, your fascial matrix will lay down more fibrous tissues to support the efficiency of that movement. If you sit for a long time, your fascial network will lay down extra fibrous tissue and support that structure and so become more fibrous and more dense. And so, yes, it is, it is a very responsive network. So today actually for quite a while now, meditation and mindfulness have become 
very in vogue. And one of the principal ways that people are trained to do that is by sitting and sitting still. And I'm thinking of that in relation to movement and doing movement with awareness and how, you know, movement with awareness or dance with awareness creates a whole another dimension to the possibilities of quote unquote meditation and mindfulness and awareness. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Yeah. And I don't think sitting in meditation is bad. You know, I think that, you know, what that does is it trains you, it trains your brain to track your thoughts, right? To work with your thoughts and to, you know, I know there are many practices for mindfulness meditation, different ways to do this, but it trains you to work with that, right? With that level of cognition. And it does help you actually, like Vipassana, like I said, is an awareness-based practice. You scan the body and you, you, really, you really focus on sensation awareness. This is so much harder to do, though, when you're not moving your body. And what I wonder, and I don't know this for sure, but what I wonder is how much of your awareness is actually, again, based on past experience. Because again, we know now too that pain is so complex, chronic pain in particular is so complex, and that can be based on what your brain expects the sensation to be. And so if we're not actually moving the body and giving it this real-time experience, then we may be observing what the brain expects to feel. And again, I don't know this for sure, but from from everything that I've learned and I've read, it is in movement that we are actually giving our tissues this real-time sensory experience to observe. That makes total, total sense to me. And it also occurred to me that probably different forms of meditation, different ways of being mindful and aware can work better for different people with different dispositions like I'm thinking of like children and also adults who who are like diagnosed with ADHD or or things like that who just find it extremely difficult and virtually impossible to sit still maybe they can still cultivate a similar kind of mindfulness and awareness through using movement which would be much more natural for them yeah absolutely Yeah. And I would just say they do different things, right? You know, a mindfulness meditation has a different goal that really than, you know, movement-based practices. We might not understand completely that that's true, but I do think that that's true. You know, if you're sitting and meditating and your practice is to observe your thoughts coming up and then to let them go, right? Let them pass by, then you're training your brain to do that. That's the task that you're practicing. And if you are practicing, you know, awareness of your body and movement, then that's the task that you're practicing. And so we can call them all forms of mindfulness. But again, if we hone in on what the actual task is, that's what we're practicing, right? And so, yeah, for children who, and adults actually, who have trouble sitting still, when you practice sitting still, then you might get better at it. You know, it might be incredibly difficult to do for some of those folks, but really what you practice, you're going to develop. And so, you know, one way, you know, to sort of maybe pan out on that is if I am somebody who really struggles a lot and fidgets a lot and has trouble kind of containing my body, you know, in this way, that movement practices, mindful movement practices might actually help me, or I should say awareness-focused movement practices might help me to 
listen into, you know, what are these impulses that I'm feeling? You know, what's underneath this inability to, you know, sit still, perhaps? What is my body asking me for? And this is actually something, too, that I really have developed is this ability to to listen in a little bit more deeply, to feel into myself a little more deeply. What do I need right now? You know, and not necessarily that there's anything to do about it, but it's a really wonderful resource. You know, maybe you know, if I am having trouble sitting still, maybe sitting still and down-regulating as a practice is not going to help me. This is something I write about as well. When I'm in a place of high anxiety and, and my thoughts are really spinning and I'm feeling worked up, that it might be incredibly difficult for me to try to take a deep breath and to calm my body down. And so if I can listen into what is my body asking me to do here? And if I have this sense of high activation, I might need to move this energy through my body and out rather than to try to tamp it down to get it to stop, right? And so this is one thing that developing interoceptive awareness has really done for me is to help me answer that simple question of what does my body need right now? And that just reminded me of many years ago when I was doing meditation in city yoga, there was a lot of sitting still. However, in the midst of that, people would spontaneously have what are called kriyas, which are spontaneous movements in and through the body. And they could manifest in, in all kinds of different ways, including sound as well as movement. And that's an example of the body doing what it needs to do to I'm not sure what it what it is necessarily, but maybe releasing tension or energy that that somehow is being tapped into, you know, in that state of stillness that now wants to move. Yeah. Yeah. And this is such an interesting thing. You know, we culturally we contain our bodies so much. Right. We you know, we we have developed these mannerisms and these ways of being polite and and proper in public right we we contain our yawns right we contain these movement impulses fidgeting it's not polite to fidget these processes of the body and a yawn is a is an instinct right a yawn is actually something that you know can be contagious we can actually yawn on purpose and induce a yawning state but this is a this is a reaction a response in the body that is something that we we tend to suppress you know we suppress sneezes even you know and so i wonder about that really like how would we be how would our bodies be and what would it feel like if we worked less hard to contain these impulses that come up all the time right and we see this in children children contain themselves much less than adults do. Children learn along the way to contain their bodies more, right? To stop running around and yelling and fidgeting with that thing and doing this thing and that, to sit still in school, to do this, you know, proper way of being in in our society. And so we train ourselves to suppress, right, these impulses. We train ourselves to contain. We train ourselves to hold. This is this is something that I'm so curious about. Like when I body read somebody's posture in a structural integration session, I have them stand in front of me so that I can look at what their posture is going to do. And then I wait for a little while. And as they begin to settle, I always say the truth begins to come out. They begin to let go of some of these subconscious holding patterns you know, the ones that will bring us to face forward and front and upright in the sense of upright that they might understand in their bodies as being upright. And then I begin to see a deeper level of patterning when those holdings 
are released a little bit more. Yeah, so you're you're touching on something that is so interesting, right? Like when we ask the body to sit still for a long period of time, what is the body going to do with that? What what is not being able to move through, right? What is being contained and held in? And movement has other qualities like I was reflecting on observing children, they often get a lot of pleasure when something spontaneously moves through their body whether it's a burp or a fart. Kids tend to love farts. That might have something to do with adults' uptightness about it. But they also stare out windows a lot. And that's a kind of movement as well. Yeah, yeah. Right, observation. Yeah, taking in the world. Yeah, they haven't learned the association of, of shame with those things yet, right? And so they, being excited about a fart moving through, it's, it's a wild sensation if you think about it. And it probably feels great because it's relieved some pressure. So what's not to love about that? <laughs> yeah. And and allowing yeah. ourselves to enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. So again, back to pleasure in the body. Yeah. Yeah. And the way we can actually experience pleasure in the body. And as you said, in our culture, we learn ways of holding our body in certain ways that restrict the flow and the fluidity of, of movement, which seems to be what gets in the way of, of our ability to experience pleasure and joy. Yeah, absolutely. It is a way of, of restricting pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we talk about this, it just makes more and more sense that movement and dance and bringing awareness into it, including the awareness of restrictions so that we can actually expand our range of movements and expand our vocabulary of movement would very naturally bring more joy and pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I see, I really see dance too as a collaborative experience. You know, I love practicing on my own, but I deeply, deeply love doing it with other people. And this, you know, this level of connection, you know, that can occur between dancing bodies. It's a world that is difficult to find outside of that place, <laughs> you know, and I've written a little bit about in my thesis about how can we bring this aspect of co-creation, co-collaborating where, you know, when you're dancing with other bodies and especially in the, you know, in the, maybe in the improvisational process or in the creation process of making a dance work, you are very aware of the fact that you are co-creating this world. You're imagining it together and we're co-writing this together, right? We're creating the experience as we go and we don't know what it looks like yet. And that's the beautiful thing about it is this like co-discovery that we're embarking upon. And I'm really drawn to thinking about, you know, how can I bring this concept, this idea of co-creation and co-collaboration into the rest of my life, you know, that I do this in my relationships as well. What is it that we're going to make together? How is it that we're going to, you know, experience this moment together? Yeah, that's so beautiful. And in our last conversation, we, we talked a bit about our experience with contact improv dance, which yeah. is the spontaneous and in the moment interrelationship of bodies together, moving with each other, listening to the other at the same time that we're listening to ourselves interoceptively. Yeah. So 
it's a wonderful dynamic tension there. And it's a space where the brain cannot predict what's going to happen. And if it does, it short circuits (laughs) our ability to do it. Yes, absolutely. Right. I can't hold on to the good idea that I have and expect that you're going to come with me, (laughs) that you can read my mind. Right. And I have to stay directly in the moment. I can't predict where we're going to go, where this might take us. Because if I get too attached to that, we're going to crash, right? We're going we're gonna to have a mishap, a miscommunication here. And so that just that practice is so gorgeous to be in that, that moment of, of your connective tissues, what your connective tissues are doing with another person, right? It's just, it's just an incredible, incredible practice. And it becomes even more incredible the more kind of movement vocabulary you learn. It's kind of like in jazz, with jazz improvisation, the more skillful you are, the more natural your ability to control your instrument or the new vehicle extension of your body and your creativity. The more vocabulary you have, the more you can completely let go into the moment and be able to respond to whatever you experience in that moment. Yeah, yeah, this is true. And I have to say too, though, I have had you know, really incredible contact improvisation duets with people who've never done that practice before, you know, with folks who maybe have on their own in other ways developed their proprioceptive awareness enough to be able to stay with that movement moment, right, with that moving point of contact. And so, you know, yes, there is a, there is absolutely a skill and a technique to to contact improvisation. And I really think so much of it is about that ability to be in your fascia, <laughs> to be in your, in your body in this way. Yeah. And this is an interesting, you know, conversation about dance in particular. It's very different to be learning a technique that is about the aesthetic of it, you know, which I also do, which I also love, but it's very different to be, you know, using a technique that is fueled from your sensory awareness, your internal or even, you know, it might even be a poetic, you know, task that you're working and moving with, but you're, you know, rather than focusing on what it looks like from the outside, you're focusing on what it feels like from the inside. It's a very different movement practice. Yeah. And fortunately, most of my experience with contact improv was just being in it and not observing it because we were all doing it at the same time. So there, there yeah, was no, yeah. nobody was just standing around watching other people for the most part. And it's only when you go to see an actual performance that you would get to just be a kind of passive observer of it. Yeah, yeah. And it's a beautiful form to watch, right? Because it's in this sort of technique that I often see something really unexpected as well, right? That people are following their sensations. And so what comes of that is not something that's necessarily... And and some folks who have been dancing, you know, at a higher level might be composing in the moment as well. I've seen that too. But if you're purely following that movement impulse and the, you know, and the feedback from other bodies, then you might see something you don't, you don't expect. Yeah. But as you're listening to another person, there'll always be these kind of like magical openings that appear yeah. for your body to just move into. Yeah. Yeah. So there could be some element of Well, there's always the element of improvisation, but some element of things that we have learned that we can, it's like, 
I don't think we're, we have the time to really think that we can now do this movement, but our body knows it. Yeah, Our body yes. has, has literally embodied the vocabulary of certain movements so that as soon as something opens up, it's sort of like receptors in the body. They just fit when they fit yeah. and where yeah. they fit. Yeah. So that's a wonderful way of looking at life as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really learned so much about life in improvisation classes. <laughs> it's very, very translatable. And that's how I think of, of movement in general, my movement practice. You know, Lisa, my, my advisor at Goddard, at one point said to me that she realized that I was doing this work through the lenses of fashion dance, that I was viewing the world, you know, my world through the lenses of fashion dance. And I, I think that's absolutely true, you know, that I have learned to apply, you know, what I've learned, you know, and see how it applies to the rest of the world and to the rest of my life. Absolutely. And one of the ways in particular that I really practice this is I love this practice of physically doing hard things or things that I maybe don't know how to do yet, right? Like teaching myself a physical skill to give my body this idea and to kind of reinforce this idea that I can do other hard things in the rest of my life, right? Efforting so that I can effort elsewhere. This is something I really explore a lot in my thesis and that I took from this seed you know, an invitation from Chris Aiken, my, my mentor at Smith, who has said in a class one day that, you know, effort is a form of generosity. And he was talking about, you know, if we show our effort in performance as we're dancing, we're giving the audience something to relate to in a bodily way, right? If I perform something effortful, it's virtuosic and easy, then I might be skipping them over, you know, they may not be able to relate, but what if I showed my work, you know, what if I, what if I was able to really show my effort, you know, and, and how much might they be able to, to really glean an experience from that. And so I started to really work with this idea of what, it, well, what else is effort, you know, and there's so much pleasure and effort or possibility of pleasure and effort, but there's also, you know, efforting as a practice helps me to do more, right? Like I effort a little bit here and then I can effort a little bit more the next time. And, and I slowly develop my sense of strength. And when my physical body feels strong, I feel emotionally stronger. I feel emotionally more capable as well. And so this translation of my physical practice and what I do in a studio within this really confined space, right, of my movement laboratory, I can take and translate into the rest of my life. It follows me where I go if I allow it to, right? If I make that connection, then I can take my, my lab research out of the lab and into my life as well. So I want to clarify something. Are you referring to effort as sort of like bringing a deeper sense of presence to what you're doing? And yes, and. <laughs> yeah, so effort in all of the ways. For part of my thesis work, I explored the different relationships that I have with effort. And so literally from, you know, strength training, lifting heavy things, there's this wonderful book by Laura Kudari called Lifting Heavy Things, in which she writes about having set out to, to work with her trauma through weightlifting. And there are these studies that have shown that resistance training and strength training can really help to mitigate the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and trauma. And so you know, I had found that book so affirming because I, I had already begun to make this correlation that when I did physically difficult things for me, physically difficult for me, 
no matter what it was, you know, a, a difficult bike ride over hilly terrain, you know, where I'm really working or literally strength training. Uh, I do a lot of body weight strength training and I love it for how it makes me feel so strong, literally. From that to a dance performance, a dance performance is always the most important thing I've ever done. Or when I'm bringing myself to a dance interaction, I let everything else fall away. And this is the important thing of what I'm doing now. And so, yes, that sense of effort as well. Or the effort of sticking with something. One of the essays that I wrote that didn't make it into the thesis was last summer, I taught myself how to swim. And this was after many, many years of having a bit of a water fear. And I had taken swimming lessons when I was six years old and I loved it. And I was jumping off the high dive and, you know, holding my breath underwater and really loving it. And then probably by the time I was 10, I was afraid of the water and I have been apprehensive about the water ever since, or I had been. And so, you know, last summer I, I set out with this task to reclaim myself in the water again. And so I meticulously would drive to this pond that's not far from where we live. And at least four days a week, I would swim in this pond that was shallow enough that anywhere I was swimming, I could put my feet down, but I would make myself swim as far as I could. And then I would swim back. And I did this over and over and over again, the effort of practice, right? The effort of, of commitment, committing yourself to this task, to doing it, right? And so, so I did this over and over again, and then I would bring myself into a deeper body of water and I tried it, you know, could I do this? Could I swim the same distance, even though this is much deeper and I know I can't touch bottom if I need to. And then I did it, you know, and then I did it again. And so, yes, effort as like this sense of commitment to yourself, right? Effort as, as a form of generosity to yourself. The effort of true self-care is another one that I write about, right? Our, our movement habits have changed so much in modern times. We move less for the things we need, right? We go and we, we get our food from grocery stores and maybe farm stands. We don't grow most of our food. We don't kill most of our food. And so what does it feel like to actually work a little bit harder for the things that we need? You know, when we have to, for example, cut all of our wood for our heating, you know, rather than rely on central heating, just turn the dial, right? Turn the heat up. This sense of satisfaction and really I would call it a sense of wholeness that comes from having done the work to feel comfortable is another form of effort that I write about as well. I just had that experience last night. I just went through a grueling two-day plumbing project. And plumbing is one of those things in this world that I, I probably dislike doing or having to do more than just about anything else. It's one of the most frustrating things to do. And this particular job that I had in my own house to replace the faucet and a bunch of pipes and stuff was particularly grueling. And after it was all over, I stood there and looked at my faucet, opened it up and had running water. And I stood back and I just experienced this great sense of pleasure and satisfaction. It just seemed like so much more pleasure than I would have imagined. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that your effort was rewarded, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I stuck with it. I persevered through all of the struggles, internal and outward, you know, the, the emotional responses and the outward obstacles and challenges. And it made me think of, you write about the dopamine reward system. Yeah, yeah. 
And I would love for you to talk about that because there's this wonderful dynamic about how you talk about it as being really about engaging in small rewards rather than the way in our culture we have kind of been conditioned to go for the big thing like the American dream or or the notion of we can have everything as opposed yeah. to getting pleasure out of the little things in life, which are really the moment by moment experiences that we move through in life. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the small dopamine reward system, there's this wonderful book called What is Health by Peter Sterling, who coined the term allostasis, which talks about health as an adaptive variation, right? That a health is a measure of, of adaptive variation, the ability for the body to adapt to different circumstances, kind of versus this idea of homeostasis, which views health as a sort of a rigid constant. And he talks about addiction a lot in this book and how addiction or the, the drive toward you know addictive behavior seems to be an adaptive behavior in a culture in which these small daily and many times a day, I would say, dopamine rewards are no longer available in our lives as much. And so, you know, the small dopamine reward system, this little jolt of pleasure that we get from seemingly small things, you know, the appreciation of a beautiful sunset, or when you get a hug from someone and you have this bit of pleasure, right, physical contact. But that in a culture in which many, many people go to work and they do work in which, you know, the possibility for new learning, learning is another way that we actually are able to receive this, this little, you know, reward of dopamine, you know, the understanding of new knowledge, where we go and, and we have these, you know, these days without a lot of variation, the nine to five schedule in, in a job, which may not feel rewarding to us, we lack the possibility in our day to day for many of us to build pleasure, right, to receive pleasure, to create possibility for pleasure. And so we go toward these bigger pleasure, you know, possibilities. And this is in the form of, of addictive behavior for many, you know, alcohol and drugs, and maybe a sex addiction, or, or many people go toward exercise. But I would argue that exercise addiction does the same thing, that we are seeking, we're seeking this pleasure, this dopamine that we need, that we vitally need, right? And so, you know, if we're able to have, you know, space and time and the possibility of you know, finding and appreciating these moments of small reward in our lives, our cup might feel a little more full on the day to day. Another person who writes about this and kind of what you're talking about a little bit with your plumbing experience is Kelly McGonigal in her book called The Joy of Movement. She writes about the persistence high, which many people know as the runner's high. And this is something that happens in the body when we commit to doing something moderately difficult for us for 20 minutes or more. It's around that range that the body, the brain rewards us with a spurt of dopamine. And she writes in her book that this is an evolutionary trait that developed very likely to keep us from starving to death, right? So that we persist in chasing our prey across the terrain, right? That we don't give up, that we keep going. And so that we're rewarded along the way with this persistence and that it is in the persistence itself that we find reward. And she's also written that this seems to be related to community, to relationships, because one of the things that many, many studies have shown is that people who exercise a lot are better able to connect with other people. 
But not just that. Studies have shown that people who exercise quite a bit and who experience this dopamine reward system quite a lot through persistence are better able to derive pleasure from you know, multiple areas in the rest of their lives. So this pleasure awareness dial has sort of been turned up a little bit in these folks. And I've experienced this too, very much so. And when I have gone through stretches of time where I've not been well and I've not been able to exercise, I slump into this depression. There, there it is again, you know, this sense of despair comes in. And when I can get my body moving again, I know that I feel well. It's almost like the lens through which I'm looking is completely different. You know, the world feels brighter and more available in some ways. You know, everything feels a little more accessible, more tangible, and I can laugh more easily and I can, I can feel pleasure more easily. And so I'm thinking about your plumbing experience and I'm thinking about this persistence high. And I wonder if it really has to do with exercise or if it has to do with this committing to something, right? Or if this is another layer of it, right? This commitment to this project, commitment to this duration, you know, of what you're doing and that reward at the end when you've done it, right? The dopamine reward of persistence. It was almost like, I mean, it's not the same clearly, but it's almost as if after going through a traumatic experience and you let yourself unwind, like the way animals shake the trauma out of their body, If we were in an animal's body when they do that, or we're in our own bodies and we actually are able to physically do that, I would imagine that you'd get a similar kind of pleasure, the pleasure of the freedom from the restriction of of that experience of trauma. Mm, Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And I know many people don't feel safe in their bodies. And so for some, I have seen that the experience of release is so unfamiliar that it can be frightening. And this is an interesting thing, right? That we, yeah, you're touching on this idea of, you know, how we are animals. We do have these impulses. We do have these instincts and we have been conditioned and we have learned to repress them, right? In the way that animals in the wild do not experience trauma. Peter Levine writes about this. He is the creator of somatic experiencing. And he writes and talks a lot about how when animals have gone through and lived through a life-threatening event, they'll lay down and shake. There's a video, it's an older video that shows this polar bear who has been tracked and tranquilized to be tagged. And as he's being released, they show him coming out of you know the anesthesia and shaking, shaking off this leftover activation in his nervous system, in his body literally shaking it off. And then he gets up and he moves on. And we have lost this capacity. And I believe it is fundamentally still there, but we have conditioned ourselves out of this capacity to shake things off, to move through that excess activation that when an event happens in which we are not able to navigate around it, to adapt to it, to either change ourselves or change the situation, and we're faced with too much too fast for our bodies to metabolize, This can get stuck in our bodies, stuck in our systems, and then we have a potentially traumatizing event. So movement touches on, you know, this other layer of how can we work with trauma, right? And I don't, you know, I, again, I would caution and just say that I don't believe that movement in and of itself has been the thing that has helped me, you know, to work with and integrate my trauma. But in large part, it has been a very large part of my work (laughs) and a large part of my you know, my, my integration, my healing. Absolutely. And literally that sense of moving it through, right? Moving it through and moving it out. 
Mm -hmm. It was interesting when you mentioned that some people don't feel safe enough in their body, or maybe there's too much trauma in their body to feel safe in releasing. That reminded me of back in um, my massage class, whenever we started doing deep tissue work on this particular young woman who was very sweet, very mild-mannered, as soon, I mean, immediately, as soon as we went down deep into her body, she would start cursing and screaming and pounding on the table. And we would spend about half of the class just completing this emotional release process for her, which was actually a, a wonderful experience for us. But it was fascinating to see that transformation in her. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much there, right? You know, again, like circling back to this idea of integration and not everything gets fixed, you know, that that someone's, you know, very personality can shift so much when we're touching deeply into the body, right? That these things can bubble up that they might not have even understood were there, right? And so this is actually one of the reasons that I do say not everything gets fixed. We may not think about that traumatic event anymore. We may not remember it, but the body does. The body has, you know, held on to that information in some way. And so when I think about, you know, the idea of release, you know, are we are we releasing that memory completely? Are we releasing that experience completely? No. But maybe what we're helping the body to do is to integrate. And, you know, in my work, I don't seek out this kind of deep cathartic relief. I don't necessarily think that it's very helpful to find and work into and move into these big cathartic releases, because I think that can be frightening for people. I think that can be a little shocking sometimes. And so the way I really work is to to dance with it a little bit. And so if I'm working with somebody who begins to find themselves in these spaces of a lot coming up, we may not spend too much time there. We may touch into it a bit and then we come back to it another time so that we're slowly expanding that person's capacity to be with those sensations that might be really frightening, right? To be with those sensations that might be really unfamiliar and feel really unsafe. We're not trying to exercise demons here. You know, we're trying to slowly broaden and expand the body's ability to be with this, you know, sensation. Mm -hmm. And for those people who want to do that or feel they need that, there are people who do that kind of work. (laughs) There are. Yes, there are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very interesting work. I mean, I've experienced a lot of that myself many years ago. So touching on movement and trauma, I would love for you to talk about Victoria Marx's dance piece and what we can learn from engaging in movement where there's a risk involved or something at stake. Because this was a piece that involved war veterans with PTSD. Yeah, I love Victoria Marx's work. She had started Action Conversations is the is the particular dance that I had written about. And she started the work Action Conversations as a workshop at UCLA. She had invited these combat veterans in to do this dance and theatrical work with other dancers and theater folks. And as they were working in these workshops, they decided collectively to create a piece of work, to perform the work. And I write about this particular scene that I was so struck by. 
And, you know, as I was watching it, I was just able to make so many connections in my own body, this deeper understanding of these concepts, you know, in movement, seeing them in action in this way through these veterans' bodies. They had created this scene where they were, I think, seven performers maybe running around on the stage together. And this is partly choreographed and partly improv. And they were running wildly amongst each other, dodging each other and weaving and trying not to collide. And then every now and then one person would call out help and they would just fall. They would let their bodies fall. And so the task of the other dancers was to hear that help, to stop running and to go and catch them before they hit the floor. And so this happened several times. Another person would call out help and they would fall and then everyone would catch them. And so this element of something at risk, right? We know that when someone calls help, we need to go catch them. The risk is they might hit the ground and hurt themselves. And so we need to respond. We need to be there. And what they're doing in this task, in this practice, is they're performing this effort, this intentional effort in which the outcome is always positive. And so something really you know, difficult and potentially risky for them, but in which the outcome is always positive. They always catch that falling body. And I really made this correlation to the understanding of eustress, the concept of eustress, in which a body successfully adapts to challenge and change. So this is what happens when we can respond to that potentially risky thing with success, right? With a, with a choice, with a movement in our bodies that actually helps us to work with it, you know, to respond to it successfully versus distress, which is the opposite, when we don't respond to it, when we're not able to respond to it successfully. And so, you know, as I was watching this piece, and then later watching the interviews with these veterans, some of the words they were saying about this really struck me too, you know, they were thinking about previous experiences from the past as they were making this piece together. They were actually in some scenes literally playing at war. You know, one person was a a fighter plane, another person was a helicopter pilot, and other people were playing at being, you know, being part of this rescue mission where a, a pilot is shot down and they come in with their helicopter made up of their bodies and they successfully rescue this pilot. And so literally playing in these scenes, in these actions that they've created in the dance that have this element of risk, the risk of this memory of the past coming in and touching on this, gently touching on this but changing the outcome, you know, and in these interviews, they talk about this as a way uh, to right a wrong, right, to, to rewrite the story, that this practice of dance in, in this way has been this chance for them to do it again in some ways. What would it feel like if we actually, you know, won at this task, if we actually successfully completed this mission? And, you know, what a way for the body to have a different experience with this story, right, with this narrative that they've carried with them. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if these dances, if this experience of making these dances with Victoria Marks helped them to integrate, you know, their past, their trauma. But I imagine that it did. I imagine that it did. I, I looked for, you know, what happened? You know, was there a, an epilogue? You know, was there a report later that came out of that? But I do know that she continued her work with Action Conversations. And so I know that it had a profound effect on folks. She made several variations of the work by Action Conversations, and she took this workshop to many places. And so this is, this is again, this is another way of, of helping the body to integrate and to work with, to maybe see, you know, the memory in a different way, you know, this experience in a different way. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that makes me think of learning ways of being able to move more fluidly between sympathetic nervous responses and the the relaxation state of the parasympathetic state in our body becoming more fluid in that process where we don't get stuck as much or hijacked as profoundly. I mean, inevitably, we're going to get hijacked at times, you know, by our sympathetic nervous system response to certain things. But learning in our bodies to at least know that we there is the possibility of that movement so that we are less likely to get stuck in narratives that this will never end. Yeah, that the building of resources, right? You know, I think it's helpful to understand that it is normal and natural to move through nervous system states, right? We move into activation and we move into parasympathetic rest and digest all day long throughout the day. And that is normal and natural. And however, when we do get stuck in high activation, many people refer to this as fight flight but I, I would say that, you know, this sense of activation is also necessary for any motivating movement, right? If you're going to go for a run, for a jog, that is an activated state. So, you know, when we get stuck in these high states of activation for long periods of time, we have trouble coming down from them, right? We have trouble coming back into a state of rest and digest, into a state of calmness and alertness without that hypervigilance. And having a feeling like you have a plethora of embodied resources to draw upon, what is my body asking from me in this moment right now, can help to move through these states. And so I think of it as meeting the moment. One of my favorite practices that I have for when I'm feeling this sense of activation, of maybe it's an anxious state, right? My mind is maybe spinning. I'm feeling anxious about something is I I'll stop and I'll shake my body, literally shake my body. And here we are back to shaking it out, bounce and shimmy and shake my body for maybe a couple of minutes to try to move this, this um, activation through and out rather than trying to calm, force a sense of calm, calming myself down. And so maybe not a down-regulating practice, but maybe a practice that uses that energy to help it move through. And so understanding too, you know, when am I needing this sense of downregulation? When am I needing connection? When am I needing, you know, a, a different kind of care? And so being able to feel resourced and able to go and, and get those things for myself. Yeah, that reminded me of two of my former pets who taught me about emotional regulation physically, because obviously they don't talk to me. And like my dog, you know, he was a very happy dog and he would wag his tail. And I noticed over time that his whole body would wiggle. And then I at one point decided to try that myself and wiggle my spine in that way. And it brought real pleasure and a sense of peace in my body in that parasympathetic sort of way. Yeah. 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 And, you know, this is that we have this phrase, right? Shake it off which is an action. Like, what does it mean to shake it off? We can literally begin to do that. And, you know, speaking of dogs, they shake themselves all the time. They don't just do this when they're wet, right, to dry off, but they'll sometimes, you know, just randomly, it's seemingly randomly shake their bodies to shake something off. And I do think that this is part of that instinctual response to move something in and out, right? And yeah, we can learn so much from watching our furry friends in this way. You know, how do they use their bodies? How do they move? That again, that yawning stretch, that 
that pendiculation that they do when they've been sitting for a long time and their fascia might feel a little creaky. And they get up and they do this big yawning stretch through their whole bodies and how pleasurable that is when we do it. You know, I love doing this. So, you know, giving our tissues this feedback after, after being sedentary for long periods of time. Yeah. And this is really what I'm talking about here is like being able to read the body, read your own body and understanding what do I need, right? What, what is my body asking from me right now? This is circling back to why it might behoove us to, to develop our sense of interoceptive awareness a little more. I write about these things that drive us. We're all emotionally driven, whether we're aware of it or not. We're interoceptively driven, whether we're aware of it or not. And we may not be aware of, of our impact on ourselves and, and on the rest of the world and what it is that is driving us. And so, you know, an example of this, I cite Bio Okomalafe about this. He spoke in this talk about this study that he read about how judges have been shown to be more lenient in their rulings when they're sitting on softer seats. And this is something that completely escapes most of our awareness, right? That we might be in a different emotional mood if our bodies are uncomfortable. And this is obvious to some people, right? If you're, if you're really hungry or hangry, then you might be not very approachable, right? But in your day-to-day and your worldview, you know, what does this say? That if judges are going to be, you know, softer in their rulings, they're going to be a little more lenient, maybe a little more empathetic if their bodies are more comfortable. And so this has really brought me into the question of what are we not aware of? You know, we are, we are moving through the world really driven by our own physical comfort or lack thereof, and that we are interacting with the world and putting energy out into the world and potentially changing the world, depending on your position of power, based on these internal drives and, again, our awareness or lack thereof of them. And so in my understanding of human becoming and how I want to be in the world, I want to know a little bit more about what is driving me and what is driving my decision-making and what is driving the way that I interact with folks and the way I interact with my surroundings. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons that I have really set out to learn about interoception, to deepen my own interoceptive awareness and to help others do this as well so that we can be more intentional. And our emotional experience is part of our embodied experience, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the ways that Lisa Feldman Barrett writes about emotions is, you know, in a nutshell, her book is dense and it's really worth the read. Again, this book is called How Emotions Are Made. But in a nutshell, when we experience an interoceptive activity, you know, something happening inside of our bodies, let's say an increase in heart rate, or maybe the experience of queasiness in our stomachs, we will experience that as an emotion as well, because this is essentially how we develop our emotional sense. It's we place meaning on top of these interoceptive experiences that we can that we can perceive. Again, we don't perceive most of them. Many of them are well below our level of awareness, but the ones that do bubble up, we have an opinion about, right? My heart is racing, it must mean this. And within a certain context, we're probably right. <laughs> we're often right, right? I am nervous about this upcoming performance and I can feel it in these physiological ways. My palms are sweating and maybe my knees are shaking a little bit and my heart is beating fast. 
And so this is really the foundation of emotion. It's not the same as emotion, but our brain is again, creating this meaning making. But the thing is, is that we often get it wrong. We might feel a sense of queasiness at the same time, for example, that we're speaking to someone on the phone. And we might mistake this as a gut feeling, but it might be that the leftovers that you ate, you know, a little bit earlier were a little bit off. <laughs> so, you know, being able to discern, you know, is this intuition or, or is this a gut feeling or is this actually something else, you know, physiologically happening? And our ability to really hone in on our awareness can help that. And, and where this is most important, you know, I, I've experienced this in myself, you know, when I was in these states of depression for a long period of time, that informed how I viewed the world. My body didn't feel well most of the time. And that informed how I thought the world was and where, what I thought my role in the world was as well. I was on guard a lot of the time. You know, I was bracing myself for an inevitable letdown most of the time. And when my body began to feel better, my worldview began to change. And so, you know, for folks who, who live in discomfort, bodily, physical discomfort most of the time, that is absolutely going to influence your worldview. And it's going to influence how you take in, you know, what's going on around you. Mm, yeah. So your experience when you were having physical discomfort in your body, that it kind of cast a, a pall upon your experience of the world, yeah. of your experience in the world and your place in the world. And perhaps when you started doing more movement and dance, that perhaps freed your body up a little and shook things loose. Maybe. Yeah. And I would say not only made me feel better, but really illuminated that relationship. You know, I don't feel amazing all the time now, but I'm more able to feel when I'm not well. And so, you know, we can get used to so many things like the human body is incredible and the human brain is incredible. We can filter out so much sensation and, you know, people do this all the time, right? We sit for long, long periods of time and maybe we don't move until our leg starts to fall asleep, right? And then we're like, oh gosh, you know, and then we move and we feel this rush of, you know, circulation coming back, but we may not feel all of the other stiffness and the tension coming in from this long period of sitting, maybe until later, maybe we develop this sort of chronic upper back and neck pain that just kind of haunts us and never goes away. And most of the time we forget about it when we're hyper-focused on, you know, getting this work done that I need to turn in. And then later when we're not hyper-focused on something else, the body starts to trickle in. But that tension is there, right? That tension is always there and always informing actually informing not only you know your posture for sure but also the way you you are in the world right the way you meet the world so when i was in these states of depression i didn't always recognize the discomfort in my body i didn't always recognize the fact that i didn't feel well but as i began to really dance a lot more and and observe my embodied sensations deliberately i began to see more and i began to see not just oh i don't feel well but i feel nuance actually too it's not just a whole like global overall sense of malaise. It's actually specific. This particular thing doesn't feel well and this doesn't feel well, but in here I can find some space and I can find some pleasure and I can find something else. And so it is in that, that being able to find nuance and variation that my view of the world and the way I moved through it began to change. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So 
let's talk about what you refer to in your thesis as sim-sim or complementary behavior and then choosing a non-complementary response. And also given an example of a non-complementary behavior overriding our tendency because we, we tend towards sim-sim behavior. Yeah, so sim-sim, that term came from one of the teachers I worked with at Smith while we were dancing. He, he was a, our music teacher and he would play improvisational music for our dance classes. And, you know, as we were learning, he would try to encourage us to find a different relationship with the music. And he explained that sim-sim is this, it, it means simultaneous and similar. And it is this very primal, very natural, and actually very pleasurable way our bodies tend to fall into sync with music, each other, you know, what's going on around us, right? The vibe, the general energy of the place that we fall into sync with it. We fall into step. And again, that is so fundamental and really just such a beautiful practice for community building when it's working well, right? When that joining in is a positive thing. So as we were learning, you know, these different skills in improvisation, he would teach us to find a different relationship to the music. And so how could we be in the same room as the music, but responding to it in a non-complementary way? And then years later, I heard this story on NPR talking about this event that really happened in which they were talking also about non-complementary behavior. And I learned that this is actually a term that is used in, in psychology as well. This group of folks was having a, a wine and cheese party, you know, outside in someone's yard somewhere in a city. And this man happened by and he intended to rob them. And he walked into the yard and he pulled out a gun and he began to point the gun at people demanding their wallets, demanding their money. And nobody had any money. And the whole scene started to really escalate. And he was getting aggravated and angry. And, and the folks at the party were chastising him and scolding him. And what would your mother think? And, you know, responding in this way that is very scripted in a, in a way, very expected for that situation. And out of the blue, one of the guests at the party kind of broke into the bubble and invited this man to a glass of wine and some cheese. Why don't you join us? And he did. This gesture disarmed him completely. It was completely unexpected. And he put his gun down and he had a glass of wine and he had some cheese. And then at some point he said aloud, I think I'm in the wrong place. And he then left the party, left his glass very neatly and respectfully on the sidewalk and went on, moved on. And so this is a really kind of strong and exaggerated example of how a non-complementary response can really just shake up the situation and maybe change the outcome. But I love this as an example. And again, back to this practice, we can practice this literally in movement, how a non-complementary response might change the outcome, especially of pattern behavior. And I have worked on this in, in my relationships as well. You know, anyone with a spouse, with a partner can probably attest to the fact that we fall into these patterns with each other. And maybe we have, you know, different kinds of conflict that come up again and again, you know, sort of things that we always fight about, right? And, but also maybe a way that we fall into conflict. Maybe there's always a way that we behave in these situations. This is also a form of simultaneous and similar, by the way. 
the way that we fall into conflict together. If one person raises their voice, then you are very likely to raise your voice in response. It's less likely that you might soften, that you might find a different way to respond. But this is exactly what non-complementary behavior is, not meeting the moment necessarily, right? Or meeting the moment in a way that isn't in that simultaneous and similar way. And so, you know, an example might be if someone honks their horn at you, you know, in a traffic situation, that maybe you smile, you know, and you wave or that you pause and let them through rather than laying on your horn in response, that sort of thing. And it is in the pause, right? It's in this pause for a moment that we might be able to find the wherewithal to not go to the automatic response, that automatic response of I'm being met with a raised voice and my automatic is to raise my voice as well. And, you know, how does this, how does this help to change you know, I think of this as a broader posture of behavior, right? What is my posture of behavior? What is the thing that I practice all the time? And can I practice something that is unexpected? And I love this sim-sim dynamic in the studio for that reason, helping me to train my body. What does it feel like to do something else? What does it feel like to not respond in this automatic way that doesn't require forethought, right? That doesn't require presence of sensation and mind. So at this point, I would love for you to talk about your experience of creating and co-creating new worlds with other people in your dance pieces, like where you create new rules or different rules and parameters from our societal norms, you know, to create new spaces of possibility where you can actually explore things that might otherwise be unapproachable taboo or too scary to do anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And this is a thing in dance. And I am putting words to it, right? I'm putting these words to it. But this is, for many, many people, this is how dance exists. And, and a beautiful example of this is Victoria Marx's work, you know, Action Conversations, where maybe these veterans feel they have a space to be able to create with these memories, right? You know, the rules of the world of dance are different than the rules of real life. In real life, it might be frightening to talk about a subject that haunts us, right? To talk about an experience that we went through that was traumatizing. But in the framework of dance creation and dance process, there might be more available there for me to work with and move with. And this is so interesting to me. You know, when I create now with people, I haven't always been very aware of this, but it's begun, you know, it began to really dawn on me slowly that the ways that I interact with people who I have danced with. And I should say, it's not just in the context of, you know, the studio, you know, I might be over for dinner and our dynamic is different than my dynamic with people who I haven't danced with. Our rules are different. And this is true for everyone. But, you know, what if we illuminate that a little bit and shine a light? You know, we're different with one person than we are with another, right? We are always co-creating our shared culture. But in the context of creating a dance, I really began to understand that the possibilities are endless here. You know, in art, there is so much that is possible to explore and possible to say that is not as easy to explore and say outside in the real world, you know. And so, you know, as I, as I begin the process of creating dances with, with folks now, and especially in working with, I have one collaborator who's a musician and a composer, we've really begun to explore 
what the rules are and like the co-creating of the rules of this particular piece and how how are the ways that we are together different you know within this context and one example is we've decided to deliberately blend the music and the dance in a different way and so he's dancing now uh, he plays the violin and he's dancing now and the invitation of touch and contact is different you know as we've been practicing a little bit of contact improvisation together and at one point he expressed that he cannot imagine himself doing this with any other person the only other people who he touches this much at all are his wife and his children and so this idea that this different way of being with someone in a context of creativity allows for more to be available right for another way of being to be possible together and so another example too is i dance with some dancers quite a lot and i was having dinner with one of them and her family and you know we all sat down for dinner and then after dinner we kind of moved into the living room and nonchalantly she said do you want to just roll around on the floor with me and this is so normal right so so she and i get down on the floor and we're rolling around together and the conversation continues and our partners are sitting in chairs and and just observing this happening but continuing the conversation and so for example like this is a way of being that we have co-created together within the framework of dance that now has been able to be brought into you know permission outside of that framework as well and this is something that i that i'm really thinking about a lot now as i move through all of my relationships every day and my work practice and my relationship with my partner and in in a dinner party setting whatever it might be that conscious awareness of we are co-creating this moment together and so what if we what if we decide together deliberately intentionally what the rules are rather than you know continue or or maybe in addition to but expanding upon the allowable as culture has determined it as our larger culture has determined it i love that i love that yeah yeah and people are doing this all the time you know dance is a is a vehicle for which we can do this but you know the way that we watch norms being challenged and norms being questioned and changed you know primarily through young people they're doing this as well right they're grappling with and experimenting with different ways of being right different ways of being together different ways of defining relationship different ways of defining identity this is a similar thing and so what about different behaviors you know what about different rules of the game you know <laughs> with different a different framework you know for being in community with each other yeah yeah and being mindful enough to actually ask you know is this old way of doing this or this old way of thinking about this serving me does this work for me yeah yeah you know as we get to know ourselves deeper and feel into you know in that sort of more broad inter interoceptive awareness of ourselves. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that is that is really the seed of, you know, why why should we develop our interoceptive awareness? Because it enables us to ask ourselves those questions. Is this serving me? What do I need? You know, and this is the kind of stuff that really opened up for me. I know as I was beginning to understand the deeper parts of myself, it wasn't just oh this physical pain or the this physical pleasure, but also broader questions in my life opened up. I quit my job actually shortly after that and I got into I went into massage and I got into body work after that. I realized I was in the wrong job. I didn't want to be doing this 
you know, for my work. I didn't want to be spending my time and energy and effort in this way. It wasn't serving me. So this is just a, a really great point that you're making that, you know, when we develop interoceptive awareness, it expands into everything that we touch, everything that we do, everything that we practice, everything that we, you know, that we live. How is this working, right? And how can I bring in a little more balance? How can I, how can I find a new way of being? How can I find a new way of dancing with this situation, this experience? Yep. Yeah, that's, that's powerful, powerful stuff. So at the end of your thesis, you share a bunch of movement practices and you touched on the shake, shimmy and bounce one. I was wondering if there's another one that you think would be good to share, you know, over the radio. Yeah. I was thinking of the check-in exercise, but whatever, whatever moves you. Yeah. I love the check-in exercise. It may feel difficult. I'm going to give two. Okay. I'll talk about the check-in, but I'll also talk about the eyes closed movement practice. The word dance can sometimes be frightening, right? The word dance can feel off-putting. The word dance can feel unapproachable for many people. And so this is an invitation to see this as a movement practice rather than a dance practice, if that feels better. We often think of dance as something that we need to train to do, right? This is available for the virtuosic few. My opinion of that is that it's not so, that really dances for everybody and that, that we are not the only animal that dances, actually. But yeah, so invitation to see this as a movement practice. And this eyes closed movement practice is really simple. The way that I do it is, is I'll locate myself in a space that's open, and then I will close my eyes and wait for a moment and then begin to really listen into what my movement impulses are. And then move as I'm moved to move, to follow these movement impulses. So rather than trying to compose something, rather than trying to create something, allow these sensations to bubble up and allow my body to respond to them. You can do this anywhere. You can do this lying on a floor with very little space, and it can be small. Or you can open yourself up and do this in a larger space and really allow your body to move. You can do this sitting in a chair and just move, you know, from that place too. And so, you know, invitation to explore it on different levels as well. And this comes from the tradition of authentic movement, which is a much bigger practice involving eyes closed movement, being witnessed by others and in a group. But to take this out on your own, and you can explore it with other people as well. You can do this, you know, in your familiar spaces. You don't have to be in a dance studio to do this, but this is a wonderful way to begin to to listen, right, to what those what is going on in your body and what is being called to move right now. And a way to explore pleasure. Does this feel good? What if I follow this and this feels good and see where it goes? So that's one. And then the check-in is is a practice that I learned from a dancer, Joy Davis, who was a grad student when I was at Smith College. And the way that this was practiced there, I don't know if it exists otherwise. I don't know if someone taught that to her, but she is who I learned it from. The check-in is an improvisational movement practice in which I will either begin moving my body or I will begin with a statement or a question that I'll say out loud verbally. And then I'll allow my speech my monologue, my words to follow my movement and vice versa. The movement follows the words, the words follow the movement or they respond to each other. So one that I 
might start with is the statement, I am. And then I'll begin to move and then I'll fill in the blank and see what comes up. You know, as my body moves, I might discover that I am a little bit tense in my pelvis and then I might move my pelvis a little bit. Or perhaps I begin with the way that I'm feeling, you know, I am happy because, and then I might move into that a little bit more and just see what comes up. Again, this is an improvisation and it's guided. And so, you know, with this prompt, it can be any prompt. Another one might be the lyrics of a song. You know, maybe you've got a song stuck in your head and the words are on repeat. And maybe you begin by speaking these words into the air and see what comes from that. You know, what does that, what does that inform in your body? What does that bring up? Or maybe you just begin with movement. Begin moving and see what is prompted to come out of your mouth and then follow that wherever it goes. The check-in, see how it is that you are. Yeah, again, very improvisational, but yeah, something you can do on your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in terms of like the interoceptive awareness practice, both of these are that, right? They're going to focus on, you know, in the case of the eyes closed movement, what is, what are my movement desires here? You know, what, what is coming up? What, how am I being pulled to move? And in the case of the check-in, you know, this exploration of what is there? You know, what can I voice in my words? You know, what, what can I express in my body? You know, what is what is there? Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed talking with you so much. It's just a fascinating and, and wonderful, wonderful topic. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, there, you know, there's just so much that, um, you know, I do primarily look at this work of embodiment through the lenses of fascia and dance, but there's so much out there. And I'm so inspired by the work of so many people right now. You know, I'm so glad that the subject of embodiment, you know, of being in and with the body is being explored in a larger way now. So what's a recent inspiration for you of other people's work that you're so moved by? Mm, I was recently sent a podcast called The Emerald in which the host discusses embodiment in this particular podcast, talking about how flying, leaving the body, transcending the body is also a form of embodiment. And this was in some ways somewhat counter to what I'm thinking about and talking about, but I was so inspired by it, by these ritual practices of leaving the body of transcendence is is also that, is also this practice. So that's one, the podcast is called The Emerald on embodiment. I don't remember the title of the actual piece, but it's on embodiment. And then another are these books that I've mentioned. You know, I do have a fascination for the neuroscience and for the physiological workings of the body. So The Joy of Movement by Kelly McGonigal is just really incredible and fascinating. And she talks about how exercise changes the brain. You know, what what does movement do in the body? What function does it have? evolutionarily, you know, all of these things. And then how emotions are made by Lisa Feldman Barrett is another one. And she's, she does a really good job of making this very complex, you know, subject of the brain and the body really understandable and and digestible. So she talks a lot about, you know, the relationship between interoception, interoceptive awareness and emotion, and really talking too about how you can work with your own emotional states, you know, how can you manage your emotions? Those are all fantastic. 
when you mentioned the flying or transcending the body as yeah. being being part of embodied experience, it reminded me of something that I do a lot and that I've been doing a lot for, for years. And that is generally in the morning, many mornings after waking up, I'll spend an hour or two in bed, allowing myself to enter into liminal space. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a it's a very, very delicious, creative, open space of possibility. Yeah. And I wouldn't normally think of it as an embodied practice, but the way you spoke of the flying and transcending the body, I think it is another aspect of embodied experience. I'm not quite asleep necessarily, but I'm sort of on the edge of being in my body and being beyond my body at the same time. Yes. And yes. it's a very magical and very delicious space most of the time. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I had made this connection when I listened to this podcast to daydreaming, which is, you know, this liminal space that you're talking about is this, yes, delicious and juicy place where we are in our bodies. And yet it's this place where for me, I've been able to imagine my body beyond what I might physically do, right? Daydreaming is actually also a place I have composed or imagined many dance pieces, you know, without the actual physical embodiment of it, but the imagined, you know, possibility of it. And I love using the daydream and I don't always do it deliberately. Sometimes it just happens, you know, like I daydream or I I actually even dream at night, you know, this image that I have to put in a dance piece. And in these spaces, it enters into this realm of possibility that is some ways not tethered by my body, not contained by my body, but there's a next layer of what's possible there that I just love so much. And I think that's true in so many ways, not just the physical possibility, but right, the imaginings of like, again, a new world, a new way of being that, you know, touching into the mystical, touching into the magical, which in our, and I'll speak for myself in my day-to-day life is not as easy to do, right? It's not as easy to be and put myself in the space of openness and awe and receptivity about the world, right? That childlike wonder, you know, that is just so beautiful to be in. But when we allow ourselves to really play in these liminal spaces, that is a transcendence of the body in a, in a way, allowing the body or not allowing the body to be the containment of the imagination all of the time, right? That we can maybe find a new way of being and a possibility. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, our culture dismisses that as being unimportant, or at the very least, not as important as the affairs of the quote-unquote real world. But I find it to be at least as important in my life these days, including my nighttime dreams when I remember them. Yeah. Yeah. Reality is, right? <laughs> what it is we agree upon, right? Which is yeah. Which is one of the reasons that I am so interested in deliberately bringing that aspect that that intention of co-creation out into the quote-unquote real world, right? That intention of creating something different, something new. Yeah. Exactly. So again, it's been wonderful to talk with you. It has been really such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. 
Yeah, thank you too. I, I really appreciate this conversation. It's been great to, you know, it was such a push to write the thesis, write the work, and just really great to talk about it, you know, with someone who's read it, who wasn't my advisor, who wasn't, you know, helping guide me to produce the work, but to actually then come back and reflect on it again a, a little bit differently. Just thank you for that opportunity. Oh, it was totally my pleasure. And enjoy the dance. Yeah, you too. Be well and bye-bye. Bye for now. That was Jesse Owens. She's a dance artist, choreographer, structural integration practitioner, and an embodiment practitioner. She's also a recent graduate from Goddard's Graduate Institute in the Healing Arts and Sciences and Embodiment Studies program. Her graduate thesis is titled The Adaptable Body, Increasing the Body's Capacity for Living Through Interoceptive Awareness, Effort, and Challenging the Status Quo. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.